Today I am elated to talk about a man that I consider one of my heroes. And not just because I can relate to his personality in some sense, <laughs> but primarily because of how God used him. God used this man, as you probably know, to spark or launch the Protestant Reformation. And by now, if you've been coming to this church for a little while, you know that that's what a, a passion of mine. You know that I think it's extremely important for us to understand and educate ourselves on. And we cannot talk about the Reformation without properly introducing the man, Dr. Martin Luther. He was a reformer, a theologian, a professor, and a pastor. I think the pastor-preacher side of Dr. Martin Luther is severely overlooked and undermined. There's a little book written by Dr. Steve Lawson, uh, and it's entitled The Heroic Boldness of Martin Luther. And one of the points in his book was to convince his reader that Luther wasn't even primarily a reformer or theologian. He was primarily a pastor and a professor. And uh, he definitely was. He did not divorce his academics. He did not divorce his reforming initiatives and his writing and his scholasticism from the local church. And I think that stands as, as an example for all of us today. We are not intended by God to simply become ivory tower intellectuals, right? That's not right. That's wrong. God intends the knowledge that we learn. God intends us to use the truth that we learn from his word for the benefit of others as well, for the benefit of the church. So with that said, let me begin with prayer, and then we will dive in and discuss this man, Dr. Martin Luther. Father, thank you so much for our time together this morning. May these things be impactful. Maybe these things be encouraging to us as we study history. And for in particular, the moment in time that you chose to reform the church that was corrupted by sinful men. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So here we go. Another reason why I am very excited to talk about this topic this morning is because I have been to Germany twice. I've been to Wittenberg twice, which is the town where Luther worked and lived most of his life. And so I'm going to have an opportunity to show you some pictures that, that, you, that are better than the ones you just find on the Internet. They're better than, better than pictures that you would just find in a book because they're pictures that I took and they're pictures that I can explain better than anyone else just reading a book or something. So here we go. The early life of Martin Luther. We'll go through this pretty quick and then we'll emphasize on his work. He was born in Eilsben, Germany on November 10th, 1483. He received the typical late medieval Catholic education, emphasis in Latin, grammar, and the classics. Again, as I said yesterday, what, what's the theme that you start to see in the life of these reformers? That they were highly educated. They were skilled in academics. And I think that really is a correction to some of the fundamentalist type attitude that's prevalent in some pockets of American Christianity. Has ever been exposed to um, independent fundamental Baptist church? Well, in, in that in that environment, they're very anti-intellectual. They're very we they're very much against formal training. In fact, one of my best friends came out of that movement, and he he started to preach in a pulpit to God's people without having any training whatsoever. It's, they just say, you want to preach? Well, amen, brother, here's the Bible. Get up there and let it go. That's what happens. And that's why you have a lot of inerrant, errant, excuse me, errant theology in those circles and ignorance. And so just studying church history just reveals to us that the men whom God used 
were highly educated and they were committed to honest, hard scholastics. So he went to the University of Erfurt in 1501 because his dad wanted him to become a lawyer. His dad, just like a lot of American parents today, they want their kids to be successful. They want their kids to be rich. They want their kids to be self-sufficient. And so, just like today, back then, becoming an attorney was a prestigious career. And so Luther, growing up as maybe a low-to-middle-class person, his dad wanted him to better himself and go out into the world and make his mark in the legal profession. But something happened that diverted that plan. As you've probably heard before, he was on his way back to Erfurt after visiting his father. He found himself in the middle of a lightning storm. He, become, he became very afraid. He feared for his life. So he cried out to St. Anne. Now, if, you're, if you've been raised Protestant, if you've been raised Baptist or whatever, that sounds strange, doesn't it? It should for someone to cry out to a dead person, right? Because we know that a dead person can't hear you, right? The person who has left this life is either with God in heaven or in hell paying for his, his or her sins. And so why would Martin Luther call out to St. Anne? First and foremost, he was a devout Catholic. He was a, a good Catholic. That's what they do. They have patron saints. St. Anne was the patron saint for minors, and so that was his family's patron saint. And so naturally, he called out to St. Anne for salvation. In spite of that idolatry, in spite of it, God did not kill him in that thunderstorm. And he used it. He used that act of idolatry to put him on a trajectory to true salvation and ministry. So he cried out to St. Anne and he promised St. Anne that he would become a monk if he was saved. He was saved. So he went back to his dad and said, Dad, I made this promise. I got to go be a monk now. And he was not happy with it. It caused a division in his family. But being the terrified, superstitious man that he was, he kept his promise lest he'd be judged by the wrath of God. So he went to the monastery, an Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. And during his time there, he just became consumed with the wrath of God. He became consumed with the fact that he deserved divine wrath. So much so that he would torture himself. He would beat himself. He would deprive himself of food and water. He would intentionally hang out and and, and, and just stand in the cold. Because again, as a good Catholic, he is trying to pay for his own sin. He is trying to work enough so that God will one day perhaps say that your good works outweigh your sin. And so his whole life became centered around atoning for his own sin. He said, if a monk ever got to heaven by his monkery, I would have gotten there which is to say that he was a very zealous, committed monk. So one day, now we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but later in life, when he got exposed to Scripture, he found himself in Romans. Romans 1 helped him understand that justification is a single act by God, not of man. It's not a gradual process of faith mixed with good works. He read Romans 1.17, that just shall live by faith. Our justification comes through faith, not through anything else. And so... Uh, Luther would write later in his testimony that when he uh, discovered this, he became born again. So now, um, 
I'll take a break from some of the bullet points here, and I want to show you some pictures. This this is in Erfurt. I was I had the opportunity to go to Erfurt for a day in May, and this is the monastery that Luther attended. It's still standing. It's mainly used now for an, a museum. It's not an operative monastery, but it's still standing. Now, how many of you have ever seen the movie Luther? Anybody, you have anybody who hasn't? You need to do that. That's your assignment. You need to watch that movie. In the movie, it depicts a scene where he is lying face down on the floor before an altar. And this is the place. That's the place where Martin Luther would, would lay face down before the altar in the monastery. Questions for at the end. So just write that down if you don't mind. I want to get through this and then we'll pass around a mic. So, there's a powerful scene in that movie where it shows this. And again, that's, that's, that was just part of the, the, the idolatry of, of the mass, of, of, of the Eucharist in that time. This would have been a typical bed that a monk would have slept on. And that's a replica, I, I believe. And it's just a simple simple uh, mattress made out of straw and sackcloth. That's what they have would have lived on, slept on, in a very small room. This is the Erfurt Cathedral. And this building was built, I believe, in the 12th or 13th century. And this, this is actually still used today. It's still, it's still a, a functioning Roman Catholic cathedral. And as you'll see, I mean, it's hard to see in this picture, but it's massive. It really is, it really is breathtaking to see, to see the, the size and, and just the, the intricacy of these, of these buildings. And you can see, to get to the main entrance, you have to walk up all these stairs. And uh, I'm sure they have some system for handicapped folks now, but it, it's, it's quite the hike just to get in there. And so I had the opportunity to go inside this cathedral, and this is what the altar looks like. You can see how grand it is. You can see how much money and time would have went into creating something like this. It's very artsy. It's carved out of marble. It's got statues of men everywhere. Of course, you have Christ up there with the disciples at the top. Um, Beautiful stained glass windows that are, you know, 20 or 30 feet high. And so, so this, this is what um, a lot of people grew up thinking church is, right? A lot of people think that in order for it to be considered a church, the more grand the building and the architecture is, the more spiritual it is. I remember going to a Baptist university, a Baptist university in, in Anchorage, Alaska, and this woman in my theology class talked about how she would go into these old cathedrals and she would just say she felt the presence of God. You know why she would say something like that? It was because she's a bit influenced by Catholic theology. Right? You don't feel the presence of God. Right? You know that God is omnipresent. It's not something you feel. It's something that you know and it's something that you affirm. So, so this, 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 this monstrosity was intended for common people to understand. That when you walk into a place like this, that's where God dwells. The pinnacle of his presence would be the mass. Where the wafer... And that wine literally becomes Christ himself. So, I could show you more about Erfurt, 
we, we got to walk around. There's a lot more in that massive cathedral. Um, a lot more. A lot more that is eye-popping and a lot more that would make you grieve. But on a lighter note, what was really neat was I was able to kind of tour this, this cathedral with Steve Lawson, and he took the opportunity to start preaching the gospel inside this cathedral. And so I was with a group of about 15 or so people. We were the only ones inside this cathedral at that particular time. And, and Dr. Lawson just opened his Bible and started preaching the gospel. It was amazing. And it wasn't moving simply because he is a tremendous preacher. But it makes you wonder if that was the first time, or the first time in a long time, where the true gospel was ever preached there. And so he wasn't like himself, like being like really intense and loud. But, you know, he, he, he was speaking enough to where it filled the room. And so somebody must have complained, right? So one of the workers of the uh, cathedral, I don't know what she called herself, but she, she told him to stop. <laughs> she told him, you know, that we need to be quiet. But he didn't. And it was, it was, it was an amazing experience. So, that's Erfurt. Now, after Erfurt, what happens is one of his mentors, one of his, his leaders at the monastery convinces Luther that he, knows to go to, he needs to go to Wittenberg and get, and get a doctorate. So, Luther is, is just so messed up that his, his own leader doesn't know what to do with him. So... I wouldn't do this, but he sends him to go become a professor. <laughs> I wouldn't send a spiritually feeble and weak man to go teach at a seminary, but that's what they do. So he went begrudgingly, and uh, he showed up in 1511, where he went to do his doctorate, and he became a professor at the University of Wittenberg. But as I said before, Luther is not just some academic elitist. He is a preacher. And so what he discovers in the study, he brings to the pulpit. What he discovers in the study, he, he convinces his students, but then he takes it to the pulpit and he, and he proclaims it to the common people. And then the Pope decides that he needs money. He needs more money to build St. Peter's Basilica, which still stands today. So if you ever go to Rome, which I would love to, I think it would be amazing, just to see the history. Anybody ever been to Rome? You've been to the Vatican City? So St. Peter's Basilica was built with money that was made through indulgences. So if you don't know what that, anybody not know what that is by now? Anybody not know what that is? I don't want to assume too much. Okay? Indulgences. And what, what, Luther, what really got Luther going was the Pope dispatched an itinerant salesman called John Tetzel or Johann Tetzel. And he was a gifted order. He was a gifted salesman, a gifted speaker. And one of the most dangerous things in the world is a gifted speaker with heresy, right? So, so Johann Tetzel went around and he, and he began to convince common peasants that they needed to give their money to the church so that their loved one can get out of purgatory into heaven. But it costs money. It wasn't given freely. It costs money. And it's hard for us to understand because it, we're in America. We're not poor. Nobody, nobody here is poor. Some of us might be richer than others, but none of you are poor, right? We, we have no clue what it's like 
for a, for a church leader to go around and say, you better give me your last dime or else your granny is going to burn in hell. We have know what that's like. So we just have to use our imagination. So here's where Luther comes along. He, he, the pump has been primed. He has been studying the scripture. He's been preaching it. And Luther can smell a rat. He can smell this snake in the grass, Johann Tetzel. And he begins to find out that the people that he loves and the people that he's preaching to is being duped. And they're bringing these indulgences to him. And he's furious, and rightly so. So he decides to do something about it. But before we get to that, that is what is called the city church in Wittenberg. This is where Luther did the bulk of his preaching in the center of the city. The church where he nailed his document, the 95 Theses, is a different building. We'll get to that in a later. I think it's important to understand that there are there were two main churches in Wittenberg. The city church and then the castle church. The city church is where he preached. I think that I don't think that's the pulpit. But I think it's a replica or a refurbished pulpit, but it's the same building. And you can see in the background the altar and above that is a is a um, a painting. I forget what it's a painting of. I didn't have much time when I was in there, but I know the painting is by a guy named Lucas Cranach. Lucas Cranach was a famous painter that lived in Wittenberg, and he was a reformer, or he was he was on the same team. So a lot of the illustrations or pictures that you see um, that Luther publishes, if you ever look those up, they were done by Lucas Cranach. A lot of paintings in that era were done by him. And he just lived down the street from the University of Wittenberg. This is what Wittenberg looks like today. As you can see, there's the castle church in the background where Luther nailed his theses. But this is, you know, original streets. But a lot of the buildings have been, you know, really done up and restored because... They wanted to cash in on the tourism. <laughs> uh, they've been they've been preparing for 2017 for years, and so they they really they really made the city look nice. And it's really small. It's only probably about a four or five block town, the old part of Wittenberg. And so that's what a typical street looks like today. It's a lot of restaurants, a lot of pubs, a lot of um, shops. I even found a Christmas shop to buy something for my wife and bring home for her. And they have a little mall, a little mall outside of, on the far side of the, of, of the village. It's a beautiful town. This is the entrance, the main entrance of the University of Wittenberg. And what's funny about this is that you could see these little seats right there. The little seat, you see those seats on the side? And so Luther's wife, Katarina von Bora, had those seats installed. So that she could sit outside and wait to talk to her husband. Because Luther was always busy. He w- if he wasn't studying or teaching or preaching, he was discipling people. And he was welcoming um, travelers into his home. And what ended up happening is that, is that, is that, is that, is that Kata just tried to you know, hang out when Luther was out there doing his thing. And then she would just sit there and wait for him to have a minute or two to... Talk about what husbands and wives talk about. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, when he got to the University of Wittenberg, that's all it was. But eventually, I don't remember what year, but it became Luther's home. And it also became kind of like a, like a boarding house where he would, he, would, he would open up his home for travelers and, and students. And, and um, his wife... Um, who was a runaway nun. I don't know if I'm going to get to her later. But she was a runaway nun, and they, uh, they, 
uh, Luther wasn't really too interested in getting married at first, but he, he said that I better get married because I, I preach that it's good and forced celibacy is evil. And so, so there's one nun that was, was left after the rest of them got married off, and uh, he decided to go ahead and marry her. And at first, he wasn't, you know, too excited about it, but of course, he, he, he grew to love her very much. And so much so that he would, he would refer to her as my rib, the biblical reference coming from Genesis, how the woman was taken out of man. So, so that's where his wife would sit when uh, she was waiting, waiting to uh, interject into her husband's conversations. Now, it's a little bit more weighty. Um, right now, this, this building is, is a museum. It's the Luther House, the Luther Museum. And so it's amazing. I mean, I could go in there and spend hours. I'm, I'm the type of guy that when I go to a museum, I, I just don't like to breeze through it. I like to actually read stuff. Jen knows about this. So I could, I could go into a museum and just spend hours. Um, and there are many things. There are many things I could show you. But th- 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 this is one that's the most relevant right now. Who, know, who, who, who has a wild guess about what that might be? Anybody else? Anna. Yes. It's a coffer. That's where peasants would insert their money. And uh, get their indulgence. And so, and so, you know, it's, it's one thing looking at a picture, right? It's another thing to see it. And so, and so when I saw this, I mean, I stood there for at least a few minutes. I mean, I mean where, where, where can your mind go as you consider how much money that was stolen from, from people on a religious lie? How many times was that filled? It's, it's, just, it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? So, as you know the story, Luther finds out about this sham, and he decides to do something. He decides to write some things down. What he writes down is what we know as the 95 theses, 95 statements. And October 31st, 1517, he picks up a hammer and a nail. He marches over to the castle church in Wittenberg, and he posts it. And uh, I, I saw something on Facebook that, that, that was joking about this, and it, and it said something how, like, that, that was Facebook in Luther's time, right? We use Facebook to post things that we want to share with other people, you know? Then, that was like the community bulletin board. So, so Luther, as you've probably heard before, he wasn't really intending to get himself excommunicated. He wasn't intending to get himself killed. He wasn't really intending to to take the debate outside of Wittenberg. He just wanted to debate it with his students and with his former faculty members. But somebody saw it, and somebody says, hey, we need to make this available to everyone. And in God's providence, that was available, that was possible because of the, the, uh, the, the, the printing press had just been invented. And so somehow it got distributed through through the printing press, and uh, that's that's when the fire started. It was mainly about the sale of indulgences. Let's read a couple of them. Now some of them are good, some of them are not good, but we also have to understand that. Most scholars believe that Luther was unconverted at this time. He was not saved. 
that, that part where I told you earlier where he reads Romans 17 and becomes born again, that, that's, that's later. But, you know, if God can use a donkey to get his point across, then he could use an angry, deranged Catholic monk to do what he wants to. And that's what he did. Number 21, he says, Therefore, those preachers of indulgences are in error who say that by the Pope's indulgences a man is freed from every penalty and saved. We'll get to a few more. We'll read a few more later. But um, I want to put these, these pictures up. So this is the door. This is the door. Um, it's no longer a wooden door, obviously. It's a steel door with, with the 95 theses inscribed on the door in Latin. And it's Latin, right? I think so. I, th- I think so. And so um, the original wooden door was burned down or destroyed in, during, in some war. Um, I forget what year. But, but, but the original wooden door was destroyed. So they, they put up a, a, a new steel door. And, and up above you can see Christ and you can see Luther and Melanchthon on the side of, side of the uh, side of the cross and so that's that's the place where where it started and I've had the pleasure of standing there twice and so this is the castle church that's you can see why they call it the castle church right it's this massive tall um, medieval castle like structure um, and I, th- I think right now um, the government of Wittenberg they're trying to they're trying to Restore it to where it's safe enough uh, to go to go up in. So right now they weren't they weren't allowing people to, to climb up to the tower because you know they have safety codes or whatever. But they're they're working on it. So I, I have to show you at least one picture of me with Steve Lawson. So so that's us inside the castle church where Luther nailed the theses. It's inside of it, and as you can see, it's open for the public to go into during the business hours. You can see the pulpit in the background. You could see the altar way back there. Up above us was a massive pipe organ. It's a beautiful place. And uh, I went, this, we, the first time I went in there, it was quick because he had stuff to do and I had to follow him around. So I went back inside the church a couple days later and just sat there for like a half an hour. And as I was coming in, as I was sitting there, this this college choir from some Lutheran university, I can't remember which one, but they came in with instruments. And I'm like, this is weird. What are they doing? And, and, and all of a sudden, they just start taking their instruments out, and they started to form, you know, a circle. And, and they, they started to sing hymns. And so it was, it was a really moving experience to, to sit there and, and hear this beautiful choir sing, sing hymns inside the church where Luther started Reformation. It's pretty cool. And so obviously it was an unforgettable experience. So let's look at a few more theses just for kicks. Number 32, they will be condemned eternally together with their teachers who believe themselves sure of their salvation because they have letters of pardon. Number 36. Every truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without letters of pardon. Number 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Now, when I, when, I, when I found out that Luther was unconverted when he wrote this, I was shocked. Right? Because that, that's pretty good. I mean, wouldn't you agree that, that, the, that the true treasure of the church is the gospel? So for an unconverted man to admit that, I mean, it, that's, that's another act of grace right there, isn't it? But it just goes to show that knowledge, right? The demons believe and shudder. They're not saved. So, the, so orthodoxy doesn't save you, right? It's necessary, but orthodoxy itself does not save you. Just rem, that's just a rem, just that's what we should be reminded of when we consider that Luther was unconverted when he wrote these things. 
Number 32, they will be condemned eternally. I already read that one, didn't I? Okay, that was a double slide, sorry. Okay, so after, after these theses were, were propagated and, 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 and mass-produced, the Pope summoned Luther to recant. And in 1520, a papal bull of excommunication was issued. And just a few months later, he decided to go ahead and burn it publicly. And uh, like I said before, I think, I mean, that, you, just, you just signed your own death certificate. You know, we see it as kind of a funny little act of defiance from an angry little monk. But it's more than that. It's funny, but it's, it, it's, it's more than that because he was sane. He was openly defying the vicar of Christ. So to a good Catholic, he was denouncing the Lord himself. So you can see how he kind of upped the ante a little bit. So it took a while, but uh, word got back to the Pope, and he was officially excommunicated in 1521. Now the real moment of truth comes, as what's known as the Diet of Worms. 1521, Charles V, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, called a council, a trial to address religious issues. Luther appeared and was asked to recant with what he had written. And after some trepidation, Luther's response was no. I cannot recant unless they are disproven by Scripture and plain reason. Here's a famous rendition of that moment where he he said I am conquered by the Holy Scripture quoted by me and my conscience is bound by the word of God I cannot and I will not recant anything for it is neither safe nor honest to act against one's conscience here I stand I could do no other so help me God amen so with the act of burning the papal bull he had committed suicide with this confession before the emperor and the church. He sealed his death. Again, we, we, we can't understand how significant that, that moment was. And we never will. Because we live in a country where church and state are separated. We live in a time where you could believe whatever you want. And it's celebrated. Back then, it wasn't like that. You were, you, you, you were considered an enemy of the state, a heretic. And you were punishable by bringing it to stake. No exceptions. So... Luther leaves the trial, but thankfully, God intervenes. A fake kidnapping is staged by Frederick the Wise, right? Frederick the Wise, who is the, who is the, the guy that is in charge of the region that Wittenberg was located in. So you have the empire, and then you have regions within the empire, and those re- kind of like a state, like like United States of America, we have governors. So there was we have a president, and then governors of states. Well, there was a Holy Roman Empire, and then regions, and those regions were governed by I forget the title they had. Anybody remember? Um, yeah, prince or something like that. So Frederick the Wise was on Luther's team. 
And just like um, Wycliffe had his, he was in cahoots with some, some men in high places. And it saved him, right? Luther's relationship and support of Frederick the Wise saved him here. So a, a fake kidnapping was staged and he was taken to the Wartburg Castle. And he remained there for a year under a pseudonym named Knight George. And during that time, you, you could still go. I mean, if you do like a Reformation tour in, in Germany, the Wartburg Castle is one of the stops. I, I didn't get to go there because it was too far away from Wittenberg. But if I ever get to go back to Germany, I would love to go there and see that place. Because what's significant about that place is that's where he translated the New Testament into German. He translated the New Testament into the language of his people. It's amazing. And he didn't do it with Logos. <laughs> he did it with a Greek New Testament and a dictionary, right? For the most part. And he just labored hours and hours and hours on end, translating it into German. Amazing. So there's much more that I could talk about. There's much more that I'm skipping. There's some things that I, I'm already at the time, so I didn't, I didn't bring up. This is just to scratch the surface. I hope it whets your appetite. I hope you at least have some frame of reference for when we talk about the Reformation, you have a deeper understanding. So briefly, let me talk about Luther's legacy. He was instrumental in establishing evangelical worship in the church. He emphasized preaching, and he loved children. He loved children. He didn't, you know, say, get the kids away, they're annoying, they're loud. No, he, he, he welcomed them, and he taught them. He wrote a catechism for them. So therefore, men, you, you need to follow his example there, too. So he celebrated the Lord's Supper without Christ being sacrificed anew. So he, he, he rejected the idea of transubstantiation. Worship services were conducted in their language, not in Latin. And he did not accept the Catholic position on the Virgin Mary. So that's Luther in a nutshell. Um, Maybe I'll take five minutes for, for a question or two. So if you have a question, um, please, please ask and make it succinct so I don't go too much over time ready. Let's, let's get to Tom if he still has one. Do you have a question, Tom? I assume. Is that on? Uh, okay. The uh, monastery was part of the college then. Is it on? Hello. So it's recording. Okay, get on with it. <laughs> the college included the monastery and the church and all of that, right? No. Uh, and Wittenberg, I don't think the Wittenberg uh, was a monastery. Wittenberg was a university. There were two churches and a university there. Erfurt. Erfurt. That's where he joined the monastery too, right? Yeah. So, is that part of the college? Uh, oh, oh, you're asking was the monastery part of the college of the university in Erfurt? I don't know. I don't think so, but I can't say for sure. Jen has a question. So you mentioned um, a few times that when he and Luther nailed the 99 Thesis on the wall, he was not saved. At what point in time do you think he did become saved? I can't remember the year. I'm sorry. I don't know. I'd have to look that one up again. Anna? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Um, I'd, have, I'd have to look it up. Did Luther preach from the apocryphal books that the Catholic Church affirmed? Well, that's a good question. I don't know that either. 
I don't know if he affirmed the Apocrypha. Actually, because wasn't the Apocrypha canonized later? Yeah. Right. So Trent um, wasn't that long after Luther, right? Was in the. Yeah. We I don't know the dates on hand. Okay. 1530 to 48. So it was it was still 16th century. So right after Luther. So I I don't know I don't know what Luther did with that. Um, that's a good question. But I do I do now recall that Trent. If you don't know about the Council of Trent, Trent was a Roman Catholic council that was convened to respond to. Uh, the teachings of the Reformation. And that's where they said explicitly, and this is important, so I'm glad you brought it up. Council of Trent is still binding. And so, so if, if a Roman Catholic, again, I, I want to be careful and I want to make it clear because people get mad at me if I don't make this clear. We cannot say that every single Catholic is damned. Right? We, we can't see someone's heart. But you have to be honest and truthful. And say, the Catholic position, what the Roman Catholic Church officially professes to believe and teach, someone who follows that is damned. Because Trent explicitly says, anyone who says that he is saved by faith alone, let him be anathema. It's explicit. Yeah, Tom? The Council of Trent what they decided there stayed as part of the Catholic doctrine until 1962. You're talking about Vatican II. No, yeah. it's still binding. They, 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 did not, they did not... I know, I know, but it was the thing until 1962. And whatever they did in 62 right. was not a whole lot of change, but... Right. Yeah, they did, they did, they did add some stuff. Or, but they, they, one of the things I know they didn't do was repeal Trent. That decision in response to the Reformation stayed in the Catholic Church as the, whatever it is, the doctrine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anna has a question? I was just wondering what you think, um, you know, just what you said, that they sort of you believe in faith, that you're justified to say by faith alone, that you're damned. Yeah. Do you think that that had anything to do with an ignorance of, you know, I'm just thinking, even mm-hmm. as Christians, we right. believe that you don't just say it like you just said previously. You don't just believe right. and then live like hell. Right. Know, that's obviously not what God did. If he really changes you, then you do actions, you do live. I mean, we know that if you died right after true saving faith and you had no actions, you know, to live out, then obviously you'd still be saved because it is a work of grace alone. But I'm just wondering, is that, is there any evidence that they just had like a faulty, like they didn't understand that those two things are one and the same? I mean, I don't know. It's hard for me to explain what I'm trying to say. But are you asking if, if we're defining justification differently? Kind of like? Yeah, like they think, we think that you're just saved and you're, or you're just believing and that's it. And oh, yeah. A lot of them do. Absolutely. Which is wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I mean, obviously, right. and it is wrong. So I'm just saying, maybe if that's what they meant by that, that it's yeah. as extreme as what. That's why you, you you have to be careful when you go on Roman Catholic websites. Like there's there's a website called Catholic.com, and and they they refer to you as a fundamentalist. They 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 build straw man arguments, and they burn them down with their system. And so they they do say that. Um, that you just believe in, and that's all that matters, right? That, that's that's a straw man. That's not what we say. But because they can't reconcile sola fide with passages like um, you know James two, where it, where it says that a man is justified by works, right? And so, but they're they're not interpreting those passages exegetically. They're interpreting those passages through the lens of their tradition. So, I just wanted to add, if anyone does have any uh, curiosity as to what the Roman Catholic position is and how the, our, the Protestant 
position is different, you can go to CARM.org, C-A-R-M.org, uh, and there's a, a, an apologist named Matt Slick who has documented a lot of his research uh, in, in his evangelism with Roman Catholics. And you, you can find, uh, he will cite where in the uh, Catholic catechism, where the position, he'll state what their position is and where you can find it so you can read it for yourself. That's a place to start, but don't end there. <laughs> Because it's, it's, there's not that much there. But there are some good books that were written on, this, on these subjects. So I wish we could we had dialogue more about this stuff, but we should probably wrap this up and get ready for worship. So thanks for your attention. Thanks for your questions. And I hope this was profitable. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Lord, thank you for Martin Luther. Though he was a man with many faults, he was a man with plenty of unrighteous anger. He said things that were harsh. He was wrong in many areas, but so were we. We too are sinful, wretched beings. We too are prideful and full of unrighteous anger at times. So, Lord, we we do want to esteem Luther for the good things he did. We do want to honor his legacy and honor his commitments and his accomplishments. But we also primarily and mostly want to glorify you and thank you for changing Luther and equipping him and giving him the audacity to do what he did in spite of his idolatry in spite of his error and all I can pray Lord is for your mercy to be extended to us in this generation may you raise up Luther's to be stalwarts for the truth to proclaim it without permission without shame proclaim it with the right motive with the right interpretation so souls may be saved and saints may be sanctified in Jesus name, Amen